I'm going to be speaking about decision making. How do we make decisions? If you're like me in the presence of a lot of options, the more options, the more stress you might feel. The question that you come to, that I come to, is which route do I take? Which course for me is the best option? That's true with big decisions, of course, but even small decisions. Sometimes the more options that I have, the more stress that I experience. There was an interesting study in Business Insider. I don't know how many of you are avid Business Insider readers, but the study said that the average human can handle about between 8 to 15 choices. After that, you begin to feel so overwhelmed. So if you went to an ice cream shop, for example, and there were 100 flavors, that sounds exciting, but you would never know which is the right flavor. Should you get the Rocky Road or the, or the caramel or the bubble, bubble gum? You can do about 8 to 15 flavors, but more than that, you'll start to feel anxiety wondering, did I make the best decision for me? Did I make the right decision? I want to illustrate with a silly example, but a very real example for my wife Amy and I. Sometimes on, well, we always have date nights on Friday nights. And most of the time we'll go out and we'll do some adventuring together, try to find an area we've never seen before. A couple of memorable ones is we'll look at the subway map and we'll literally just choose a, choose a stop. Like we'll say, let's go to Shindangyok today and just walk around and try to find a restaurant. And, and those, are, those are the memorable ones. But other days, we're feeling quite tired on a Friday night, especially if it's rainy. You know that idea that the rainy night in, right? And those nights, we still want to honor our date night because it's really special and we look forward to that. But maybe we just want to have a night in. And so we'll say, hey, honey, what about a, a dinner and a movie? And on those nights, she has a 35-minute, 40-minute commute back home. And so we'll be talking on the commute on the subway, trying to figure out what we're going to eat. Usually we do some kind of delivery option. We're going back and forth. Should we get the Thai? Should we get the, the tacos? And we decide on that. And then hopefully the food arrives by the time Amy is at home because it's 8 p.m. and we're tired and we're hungry. And so usually it does. But the problem is, remember, it's a dinner and a movie, right? And I don't have the movie figured out yet. And so, you know, she washes her hands. We pray really quickly. And then she starts eating, and I'm eating too, but I'm what I'm really focused on is trying to pick the movie as we're eating, right, honey? And so I've got the, the laptop on my kitchen table, and I'm scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I'm going through every genre of movie available. I'm wondering, should we watch the chick flick tonight? Should we watch the drama? Should we watch the documentary? And within every drama genre, I have to look at every single movie. Because even though I found one or two that would be good enough, it's that anxiety of, I wonder if there's a better movie there, out there. I want to invest my hour and a half in the absolute best movie possible. So it's good intentions, but do you know how that date night tends to end? Well, a few times, like every few minutes, Amy will just say, just pick one. And I'll be like, I'm almost, almost, just, just give me a minute. Because I want to make sure I don't have that FOMO when it comes to Netflix. And then the way it ends is she'll take her last bite and say, oh, forget it. I finished eating. And we tried to save date night, but it's not quite the same because of my anxiety of wanting to pick the perfect movie. And this has happened more than once, hasn't it? So I'm sorry about that. So a silly illustration, but a very real one. We always want 
the best choice. And the question is, how do we make decisions? Now, that's a very small one, but what about the big questions in your life? What about which major you're going to study, right, at, at university? Let alone which university, that's even a bigger question. Which job are you going to focus on? The biggest question of all outside of will you believe in Jesus is who are you going to marry, right? These kind of questions, we can understand to a certain extent why they cause anxiety. Because we want to make the right decisions. Now, the thing with Netflix is I should have just picked one, right? But there are questions that require more thought, more thinking through about what is the best decision. So anyways, that's the problem, the anxiety that we face with many options. We want to make the perfect choice. And we have a hard time making decisions, whether it's a big decision or even a small decision like what you're going to watch for Netflix. But here's the question I want to pose today. Does being a Christian have any impact on the way that you make a decision? What do you lean on to make decisions? Now, we can think about it as a toolbox. There's a lot of tools that we have at our disposal to make decisions. Maybe it's your intuition, what some people call the sixth sense. I just have a feeling that this would be the better choice. I feel like perhaps this career would be better for me. We can't necessarily describe it, but intuition may be a gift from the Lord. And you hear people share stories where they had that sixth sense, and many times it was right. But not always, right? Or is it impulsivity? Now, impulsivity, we think of it as a bad word. When I think of impulsivity, I think of shopping. Like, like if Amy, for example. No. I'll avoid that, I'll avoid that, but... We think of shopping. She, I, the thing I actually I love about Amy when it comes to shopping is she always looks for a good deal. I'll just I'll share that. I'll, I'll end that well. Started poorly, but or or when we think of impulsive, we think of gambling, right? It's it's because of you just make this, this decision so suddenly, and there's a negative effect that comes. But I'll flip it on on its side and say impulsivity is also spontaneity, and so in this case of Netflix. I think Amy would have liked if I were a bit more spontaneous and just picked one because it didn't really matter so much in the scheme of things, right? So that's one way we can make decisions. Or is it counsel? You speaking to other people and getting opinions. Now, counsel is a very biblical reality. It depends on who you're getting counsel from, of course. We want to see good, godly counsel. But asking people for opinions and even reading books for experience, those kind of things are, are all part are all tools in our toolbox of making decisions. But I want to say that hopefully believing in Christ has some bearing. And ultimately, what is that bearing? Like It includes all of those tools that I mentioned, but hopefully you're relying on God's word to lead you into making the right decision. Now, God's word, of course, is first and foremost here, right? His, his written word that we hold everything under. It's our anchor that we weigh everything against. But also, I would suggest to you that there's another word in which the Holy Spirit can speak to us in a variety of ways. But I believe that the Holy Spirit continues to speak today. And that is also an essential tool in how we make decisions. Let's look at the story of David to see how he makes decisions. And particularly in the manner of prayer, what is called inquiring of the Lord. When David was making a decision in this passage, he asked the Lord, Lord, what should I do? 
And that's what we're going to look at today. And my sermon title accordingly is the question, do you inquire of the Lord? I'm going to begin with paraphrasing the passage that my wife so beautifully read for us. She had to read through hard words like Baal, Perizim, and Rephaim, and Giba to Gezer, and she read through it flawlessly. She practiced many times, and I just want to say, beautifully done, honey. So I'll try to help summarize what's going on in, in easy language. So beginning at verse 17, it says, When the Philistines, who were the Philistines? They're the people that also lived in Israel during that time. They were the, the neighbors who were the thorn in the flesh. And mostly, it was warring back and forth. Now, sometimes Israel won, and sometimes Philistines won. It was back and forth. And usually, the reason that Scripture says when the Philistines won or any enemy of, of God's people win is because it's for discipline. They didn't turn to the Lord. They didn't repent. They didn't seek the Lord. And they think it was their own strength that won the victory. And God is very clear to remind us over and over again, it's not because of our success, not because of our wisdom. And so he'll allow sometimes our enemies to prosper in a season until we repent and come back to him. And so it's this back and forth reality that happens with these people, the Philistines. Now, at this time, David becomes king. Now, he was king before. This can be kind of confusing. But he was king for seven years of just the south, of just the two tribes. Now he becomes king over all of Israel. So this is a big promotion in the eyes of the Lord. Now, do they come and celebrate and say, congratulations, David, we just want to honor your new kingship? No, they're coming to pick a battle. They're coming to pick a fight. And so what it says is when David hears of it, what does he do? Does he run away? Or does he go and fight? No, he doesn't do either. He goes to the place of the battle, but he asks the Lord first, should I go? He inquires of the Lord. Now, the Lord responds and says, yes, I want you to go and I'll give you success. So he, he fights, leading his army, and sure enough, as God said, they're successful. He names this place, which was originally called the Valley of Rephaim, the place where uh, the Valley of Giants. You remember in biblical history that there are giants that are part of this storyline throughout, right? David with Goliath. But also, if you remember the story of Moses sending out the 12 spies, they actually said that there were giants in the land. And it was only two, Caleb and Joshua, who had faith to go, to go there in the midst of having giants. The other one said, no, we're like grasshopper, grass, they're like grasshoppers, we can't possibly, can't, can't possibly go and fight. And he names this place, after the Lord gives the victory, he names this place Baal Peretzim, meaning God of the breakthrough. Then a second time, this same situation happens, right? Same people, Philistines, Israel, same place, Valley of Rephaim, Valley of Giants. And David asks again, do I go up? He seeks the Lord a second time. And this time, God actually gives a different response. He says, no, I know you last time you just went straight on and attacked. This time I've got a different strategy for you. I want you to go hide behind these balsam trees and you're going to hear the sound of the marching army. And at that point, you're going to do a sneak attack. And it ends by saying, and David did as the Lord commanded him. There are four lessons that I want us to learn from David's example of inquiring of the Lord. The first point, inquire now. 
Notice how it begins saying, now the Philistines had come, verse 18, and David inquired. He understood that right now was the day, was the moment for him to ask. He didn't have this heart of, I'm going to make a commitment to ask the Lord later. He didn't say, I'm going to attack first. And then while I'm in the middle of battle saying, Lord, was this the right move all along? No, he understood. He went down to the stronghold. He didn't go forward. He didn't go back. He waited at that place. And he said, now I'm going to ask. Now I'm going to ask him if this, in fact, is his will. You know, if we go first, that's naive boldness at times. If we run away, that's fear. But the Lord wants us to wait and stand and ask him for his marching orders. Do you have a valley of Rephaim in your life? Do you have a place that feels like the giants are there? Where, frankly, I wouldn't blame you for being scared by it, right? Like giants, there's a factual reality that you should have a little fear if you see a nine-foot person, right? That's not crazy, okay? But at the same time, we have greater fear of the Lord, right? And so... Instead of running away in escapism or instead of running forward in foolish zeal, we wait at the place of the stronghold and we ask. Do you have a place like that? Do you have a a valley of Rephaim that seems too scary right now? Maybe it's not even fear. Maybe you deal with this thought in your mind that, Even though you know God loves you, that he cares for you, that he has a plan for your life, you agree with it as if it were a Sunday school answer. You know that truth, but maybe you don't feel that in your heart. Do you know that he wants to be intimately involved in your life? Do you know that he cares about big decisions and small decisions in your life? That is the blessing of a believer, is in the midst of these small decisions, actually it's a promise that Jesus' sheep would hear his voice. Psalm 139, one of my favorite passages, says that there's a book that's written about you in advance with all the pages already laid out. Now, does that mean you don't have to do anything and you can choose to to show up, not show up? You can sin, not sin. It doesn't matter. I don't believe so. I believe our prophetic book that is pre-written about every single one of you is an invitation. If we would turn to him and ask him, inquire of him, in that place of the valley of Rephaim in our lives. Point number two. Remember, point number one, we inquire now. Point number two, we inquire repeatedly. So in this story, we have two scenarios, right? The same situation, same people, same place. David could have said, I already heard from God on this. Why do I get to ask again? I know what he said. He said, go fight. But he understands that Every situation he needs to ask again, even if they seem exactly the same. He made a lifestyle of inquiring repeatedly. This passage from 2 Samuel is actually part of a bigger passage picture of David's life. First and 2 Samuel, you know, it says that David inquired of the Lord nine times. This is two times. There's seven more times where this exact language is used. You know, he was prophesied to become king after Saul dies. Does he say, now I'm king. This is what God said. And tell everyone. No, it actually says, he inquired of the Lord, do I go up now? David was constantly living 
in this lifestyle of repeatedly asking the Lord. Could that be said of your life? Do you have a habit of seeking the Lord regularly, even if the situation looked the same? Maybe you experienced God a year ago, and you're coming up to the same life situation, your same work experience, your same experience with a colleague or something. And you might think, oh, I feel like God gave me the wisdom a year ago. I don't have to seek him again. I already know what he's going to do. But maybe this is one of those situations. Even though it's still the Valley of Rephaim, even though it's still the Philistines, you may think it's the same. The Lord is inviting us to live a lifestyle of repeatedly asking him as David did. Now, maybe you can relate to this. I, used, I got really used to not hearing the Lord regularly. Still, many times I don't hear the Lord for a long period of time and I ask. You get tired of asking. So you're just out of hopelessness, basically. You're saying, I'm just going to rely on God's sovereignty. He, if he wants to work it out, he'll work it out. I'm not going to ask repeatedly. Maybe you do that as a protective mechanism. I've been there many times. And it's discouraging when you ask and you don't necessarily hear an answer. But he invites us to ask repeatedly. And as I was putting this, passage, this sermon series together, I was thinking in my mind, so we have nine times that David inquires of the Lord, right? Nine times in scripture. I wonder if it was actually many more times than nine and, David, and God didn't answer David right away. You know, when you read the Bible, it's like he inquired of the Lord and God immediately thundered from heaven with a vision, with fire from heaven. And the voice was loud and he said, go fight. And we're like, my life doesn't quite look like that. Best case scenario, I have a thought in my mind that I'm not sure if it's God or not, right? Can you, can you relate to that? So I wonder if actually David's lifestyle of repeatedly inquiring was way more than these nine times. And many of those times he didn't hear an answer. Many of those times he asked and he's like, I haven't heard from God for three weeks and I keep asking about this. So we don't want to assume that we only inquire repeatedly if we hear every time. That's not faith. Faith is believing when we don't yet see, when we don't yet hear. He inquired repeatedly. Number three, obey. What good is it to hear God, right? If that's our goal is to hear God, but then we don't obey what he says. I would rather not hear God if I'm not going to obey because I'll be held to a higher standard, right? So verse 25, that's how this passage actually ends. It says, and David did as the Lord commanded him. Are we willing to follow God's answer in our life, even if it doesn't fit with what we want? The truth is we probably don't need to hear God if it's already what we were going to do anyway, right? If you saw a beautiful girl that you wanted to be with and, God, and you just had this heart, you probably wouldn't need any encouragement from the Lord to do that, right? <laughs> it would just happen on its own. <laughs> if you see a, a movie that you like and you choose it, you probably don't need God's voice to speak that because you would do that anyway. You need to hear God's voice sometimes when it's what you don't want to do. So what if it doesn't make sense? If it's the Lord, we do it. Remember I said in the book of John, it says that Jesus' sheep would hear him. Does it end there? No, it says, and they will obey his voice. Hearing is worthless if we don't obey. If you think of David, I'm guessing you probably will think of the phrase, a man after God's own heart. That's also what I think of, a very famous passage. But what I didn't know before preparing for this is that Acts 13.22 ends like this. A man after God's own heart who will do all my will. Loving God 
is obedience to the Lord. Even if, especially if, you don't understand it or you don't agree with it, if you know it's the Lord. Now, the point of this, of course, is not to create any condemnation. You may be saying, well, it's impossible to obey perfectly, let alone to hear perfectly. Absolutely. But remember, this is not about perfection. The Bible is full of stories of weak men and women who desire to follow God's will and fail over and over and over again. The great prophet Jonah, what did he do when he, what did he, do when he was supposed to prophesy? He ran away in fear, didn't he? Or, like Peter, maybe you had a sense that Jesus was warning you about something. You would think that if Jesus was warning you, you would be careful not to, don't go down this road, you wouldn't go down this road. But what do we see from Peter? He exactly does what Jesus is warning him that he'll do. And yet, Peter was restored, right? So, Let's just remember that obedience is a, is a posture of the heart to continue to re-sign up. This same David, who it said about him as he did all of God's will, same David who later committed the adultery with Bathsheba, who killed Uriah, and yet, through that heart of, I'm going to submit and repent over and over again, what it says at the end of his life is that man did all of God's will. That gives me great courage that when I see the Lord one day that I can hear that too. Because I know that there would be a judging system that right now that if I were to die, it could be easily said he didn't do all, all of God's will. He messed up. He failed. He, he heard God's voice. He had the scripture in front of him. And yet every single day, every single day I've fallen short of this. And so have you. But is your heart to obey like David did? Will that be said at the end of your life? Even though you've disobeyed many times, did you get back up and re-sign up? And will it be said at the end of your life that you were a man after God's own heart and you did all of his will? Number four, give God glory. Remember, we inquire now for today, for this situation. We inquire repeatedly. We obey. And finally, we give God glory. When he answers, he wants us to testify, to share of that. I love that he renames this place. The, fair, the place of fear, right? The valley of giants. He renames it the place of breakthrough. That God gave the breakthrough. The Lord wants us to do that. He wants us to share the testimony. When we hear Him, when we obey Him, when we follow through and He does answer, He wants us to give a testimony. He wants us to rename the places in our life that right now are the Valley of Rephaim. He wants us to call them the Ba'ar Peretzim, meaning the God of breakthrough. I love this visual language here. It says that the flood comes. That's the picture of breakthrough. It's like a rushing water all of a sudden coming. And undoubtedly this provoked imagery of like the Exodus I think of. When Israel was being led by, Egypt, by Moses and Egypt's pharaohs were... Pharaoh and his army were, were coming after them. You know the scene from the movie, The Ten Commandments, right? They first are led through you know, the Red Sea, and then Pharaoh's army comes through, and all of a sudden, the God of breakthrough breaks in at the last second and crushes the enemies. It will be a suddenly of the Lord when he does answer. But he's wondering... Are you going to say, Moses, it was because of your great leadership? Are you going to say, Israel, it was because we're so great? Or are you going to name that place, God gave the breakthrough? 
as I started this, this message, I, I, the first thing I said was I felt like this is a continuation of Pastor JP's message from last week. And I felt stirring in my heart that what he did, I, I saw a picture in my, in my mind that he broke like an alabaster jar over our entire community. That picture of Mary of Bethany breaking the alabaster jar over Jesus by sharing vulnerably, by even using language like my crusty heart. I could so relate to that. I could so relate to that. But when he shared that, what he was doing is he was taking that valley of Rephaim, right? He was taking that valley of of the giants in his life, and he was turning it into the place of breakthrough. He was acknowledging God as the God of breakthrough. And I believe the Lord was so pleased. The Bible tells us, Psalm 66, let me tell you what the Lord has done. And maybe you think, I don't want to boast. I don't want to be sharing too much. I don't want to be puffed up by sharing these testimonies. The Bible actually tells us to boast. And before you think I'm sharing some heresy, 1 Corinthians 1 says, boast in the Lord. We're actually supposed to be prideful in a sense, but not for ourselves. It's boasting about the Lord. It's naming those places that were the valley of giants in our life. It's naming them, not I gave myself the breakthrough, But God is my breakthrough. Don't be scared to share. He wants our light to shine. He wants us to get in the place where we're listening to the Lord, where we're seeking Him, we're obeying Him. And then when He answers, and if it is the Lord, He will answer in His timing. And of course, it looks different often than we imagine. But when He does answer, are we going to name that place? The, The valley of breakthrough. It's no longer the valley of giants. Is that God is the God of breakthrough. I want to end with a story as I shared that there was a season in which I started to struggle to keep asking God because there were two reasons. One is God had clearly brought me to IHOP, to the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. And I accepted the Lord there in 2012. And I was first very tempted to check out other, you know, to go to move to other ministries or I wanted to, to go back to the workplace where I had gotten uh, saved from and it wasn't my season. And so I would, in excitement and, and zeal, basically like David, if he were to have just gone out and fight immediately without seeking the Lord, I was, I was like that young, immature guy that wanted to just go out and fight without seeking him. But when I would ask, I always felt like the answer was no. And so when you hear no long enough, you get tired of asking. And then the second thing is, I also stopped hearing, right? The first six months of my salvation journey, I, I had a, a journey of learning how to hear God's voice. And I was gifted to be able to hear many times. And then all of a sudden, God was interacting me with, an, with a different way than I was used to. A new way. And I started to just get kind of rely on the sovereignty of God. If he wants to make it happen, he'll let me know. I'm not going to get caught up in asking, get my hopes up. It was that kind of thing. Now, two years later, after my salvation story in 2012, there was what's called the IHOPU ministry trips. So I was a student at the Bible college there in Kansas City. And the first year I, I went on this trip to Boston and it was so meaningful. I remember ministering to different students and just experiencing God's love for them and serving in the prayer room. And it it was just so exciting to get out of Kansas City and to love God and do these things. And the next year, friends of mine invited me to go on the California ministry trip. 
There were trips all over America. So there's California, there's Texas, Cincinnati, Boston, Chicago. And then there was one in Kansas City, which I had no interest to go to because I lived in Kansas City, first of all. I don't want to stay in my hometown. You know, I want to, I want to get out and see the beautiful America that's out there. And I want to be uh, worshiping the Lord while I do that. Not that you can't worship him in a boring place, but that was my thought process. I also was a crusty and still am a crusty, a crusty man in my heart. So I, I began to, to make preparations for this California trip. In fact, the leader had already scheduled a couple meetings. And they invited me to either do some evangelism or prophetic training or something. But they said, just come to the meetings and we'll get settled and we'll get settled and we'll figure it out. And so I began to, to, ser- to serve and, and make plans and get all excited about going to California. But then all of a sudden, I had this feeling that hit my heart. And the feeling was, Jacob, you didn't ask me. You didn't inquire of me. And of course, I believed it was the Lord. And, and so I took the approach of, I'll ask for forgiveness rather than ask for permission. Have you heard that term? Where you do what you want to do, and then afterwards you're like, it's okay, right? I'm so sorry I didn't ask, but it's just a way of doing what you wanted to do in the first place. And so I tried to pull a fast one on God, which doesn't ever work. And so I said, God, sorry I didn't ask you, but it's okay, right? And I didn't hear an answer. But I really felt that that first impression was from the Lord. And so I said it a few times over the next day and a half when I was in the prayer room. Sorry, I didn't ask, but it's fine, right? And then in my mind, I was still making plans for the California trip. Like we're like sending emails back and forth, you know, doing the itinerary of things. And then the next night I had a dream. And in the dream, I was standing in the sanctuary of International House of Prayer near the water fountain. And... I was talking to the leader of the California trip and we're having such a fun time talking and we're, we're kind of dreaming about what's going to happen in the trip and just sharing stories and, you know, our hearts were connected and we were just having such a great time. And then all of a sudden I get a phone call in the dream and I do what, the poli- what polite people do and I look at the phone, see who's calling. It's the leader of the Kansas City ministry trip, by the way. I see Stephanie, she's the leader. And I politely am thinking... Okay, I'm in this conversation. I can't answer this phone call. So I put the phone away. And I'm thinking in my mind, I'm with him. I'm with this leader. So I can't answer this call. And I wake up. And I hear God as I'm waking up. And it was as good as audible. And it was, Jacob, you missed the call that I had for you. Kansas City. And the call I understood to be, right, the, the symbolic phone call, but it was, or the, the, the phone call in the dream, but it was speaking of my spiritual call that the Lord had for me. And I had two thoughts. One is, wow, I heard God in such an amazing way, right? But then the second thing was, number three, I have to obey this. I didn't really want to go on the Kansas City trip, you remember? And, but yet, this word was pretty clear, and And I was thinking, what difference does it make, right? Like, you go to all these places and you're sharing about Jesus. It's not like a sin issue. You go to one or the other. What's the difference? But I I shared with the California leader. He blessed me, and I joined the Kansas City trip. And looking back, that was the most meaningful week, one of the most meaningful weeks for sure of my life. In terms of we connected as family. I experienced intimacy with God, but with each other, which is something that I've 
always so long to experience, and we really felt like one family. Someone in the trip actually was estranged from his, his wife for two years, and God restored that marriage. They were married in Australia. She ended up moving to, to Singapore. It was virtually hopeless. They were only married for six months and estranged for two years. And during that trip, he began to get the, the heart of God to pursue her. His marriage was restored. So many amazing things that happened. And the last thing that happened is I met Amy that trip. And so it's worth it. It's worth obeying even when it doesn't make sense, even when you're not sure why. And that was a special, unique experience that I had of of where God led me. Most of the time, it's very indirect. Most of the time, I don't hear God directly, and it might be through counsel. It might be when I'm reading the word. I just have a, a slight impression in my heart, or I'm waiting to see how things pan out. But what I learned from that experience is God simply wants me to ask whether or not I hear an answer or not. He says, don't do life without me. Don't live as a practical atheist. We believe that God is real. But if we don't talk to him, we're speaking, we're living as practical atheists. And so I want to invite you into that. I want to invite you to commit. And I want to ask the question, do you inquire of the Lord? Do you want to inquire of the Lord? Do you want to hear him answer? And will you obey? Amen.